Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, our guest is Dr. Ethan Russo, who is one of the world's leading researchers on cannabis. Yeah, I've known him from some time ago through some of his ethnobotanical work. And uh, I think his, uh, he's one of the most knowledgeable people about cannabis therapeutics. And am I correct that perhaps your first research project was on cannabis? I did the uh, first human double-blind experiments with cannabis. That was way back in uh, 1968. But then you let Dr. Russo take it over. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's welcome him. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist, psychopharmacology researcher, and author. He's the founder and CEO of Credo Science. He graduated from the University of Massachusetts Medical School and then completed residencies in pediatric and in child and adult neurology. He was a clinical neurologist for 20 years, where he often saw people who had chronic pain. He's the past president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and former chair of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. He's authored many books, too many to uh, list right now, but they include The Handbook of Psychotropic Herbs and The Last Sorcerer, Echoes of the Rainforest. Ethan, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Of note, Medical marijuana is now legal in 33 United States and also in the District of Columbia. Andy, I want to start with you. Why do you think that cannabis has been demonized in the United States, in our culture, and actually in, in medicine? Well, I think the fear and hatred of that plant uh, in our culture, which is so irrational and and uh, completely inconsonant with the chemical and pharmacological realities of the plant uh, can only be explained by cannabis's associations rather than cannabis itself. Uh, it has always been uh, associated with deviant subcultures, uh, with outsiders, with people that the dominant culture has considered threatening. The knowledge that cannabis was an intoxicant, psychoactive, uh, drug traveled independently from uh, knowledge of the uses of the plant as fiber source, medicine, food. And there were many cultures in, in, uh, in Europe, for example, that grew hemp uh, for fiber, but really didn't know it as a psychoactive agent. And the, the knowledge of it as an intoxicant came to North America by way of African slaves who first brought it to Brazil and then migrated north. Uh, and that established itself in the jazz culture around New Orleans, uh, which provoked the first cultural reactions to the plant in the 1920s. Uh, later, it was associated with Mexican migrant workers in the south and southwest. And then in the 60s, it became strongly associated with the countercultural movement with hippies and political radicals. So I think it has always been these associations with uh, minorities, with deviant subcultures uh, that really has provoked the kind of reaction that eventually led to criminalization of it and has kept it out of, of uh, medical use for so long. And yet, 
it's an incredibly useful medicine. Ethan, I'm wondering if you can speak to why you believe cannabis is so very promising. Well, first, uh, you know, people should understand that cannabis was a mainstream medicine, even in the United States, uh, between about uh, 1850 and 1940. The father of 90 years. Yeah. So, uh, father of modern medicine, uh, Sir William Osler, as late as 1915, said that it was the best treatment for migraine. And it was also widely used in obstetrics and gynecology, even in children. And uh, there really were no problems uh, associated with its abuse. So given that foundation, we have to fast forward to the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. So we have within our bodies something called the ECS, the endocannabinoid system, which means that we have innate chemicals uh, that resemble the activity of THC. In fact, the endocannabinoid system is the major homeostatic regulator of human physiology, animal physiology, in fact. Uh, so it has a modulating effect on every physiological function, but particularly in the brain. This helps to explain the versatility we see for cannabis-based medicines in treating a variety of conditions that are otherwise intractable, where conventional medicine, if you will, uh, has been poorly productive of benefit to patients. Tell us about some of the most promising areas that it's been used for care of patients. Sure. Well, it's widely acknowledged uh, that cannabinoids and THC in particular have a role in treating chronic pain. Not so much in acute pain. So uh, if you have a toothache or uh, have just uh, had a tooth extraction, it's not what to use. But in chronic conditions, particularly those with neuropathic pain, the cannabinoids really shine in that context. Uh, it's been known for decades that uh, the cannabinoids have a strong role in treating nausea and, and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. That's well established. And uh, synthetic THC as Marinol was approved for that use in the U.S. in 1985, although it never gained much traction because THC alone is a pretty lousy drug, poorly tolerated and um, more likely to produce side effects than cannabis itself. Beyond that, uh, there are myriad uh, conditions. We have approval in 30 countries outside the U.S. of cannabis-based medicines, specifically Sativax or Nabiximols, for treating spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. And more recently in the US, FDA approval of Epidiolex, which is a 97% pure cannabidiol preparation, CBD for treatment of intractable epilepsy associated with Dravet syndrome, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and more recently for tuberous sclerosis. Uh, beyond that, we believe that cannabis will have a great deal to offer in treatment of a variety of degenerative diseases, uh, particularly those involving the central nervous system, and should have a great role in treatment of Alzheimer's disease because of its ability to uh, treat symptoms, agitation, sleep loss, etc., but also the prospect, if not proven yet, that it could be neuroprotective and perhaps slow down or arrest degeneration in the, those diseases. 
Now, that's really an incredible statement because, of course, uh, as someone who grew up uh, in the 70s and, and 80s, all I heard was that if you smoked dope, you were going to destroy your brain. And now you're telling me it's neuroprotective. <laughs> well, what you heard was really never true. I will not say that it's harmless. Everyone realizes uh, that cannabis can have side effects when done to excess. But for the most part, it's one of the safest drugs in the armamentarium. And the problems that are noted with it are easily avoidable through judicious dosing and administration. I have a question, Easton, a practical question. The chemistry of cannabis is so complex and the pharmacology also complex and a lot yet to be known. And there are so many different preparations of it available now. I, I'm really at a loss when patients ask me how to use cannabis or what products to, they should use. I don't know. It's, I don't, really don't know how to advise people. Uh, there are many people advocating the use of CBD for various conditions. There are some people who say that CBD by itself without THC does very little, except in the epilepsy conditions that you mentioned. So I, I find it very difficult to give patients advice. Yeah, let, let's break that down a little bit. A couple of years ago, uh, I realized that there had been yet to appear peer-reviewed journal publication on dosing and administration of cannabis-based medicines. Uh, so with a colleague, Caroline McCollum and I, we, we wrote this article. It was in the European Journal of Internal Medicine. People could get that uh, at a website we set up, ethanrusso.org. And it goes through the evidence-based information drawn from uh, randomized controlled trials, as well as our personal experience in dosing THC and dosing CBD, etc. So there's a lot of detail there. But to address a couple of the things that you wrote, we can make certain basic statements in whatever form. Two and a half milligrams of THC is going to be a threshold uh, dose. Most people will feel it, some will not. Five milligrams is a middling dose, and 10 milligrams is going to be too much at once, uh, except for people who uh, have developed some tolerance to it. And that's an important point. People can get accustomed to any amount of THC because um there is a tachyphylaxis, a loss of effect as far as the psychoactivity of THC if the doses are slowly uh, brought up over time uh, through a slow titration. But in general, uh, I find for most indications that people do not have to exceed 15 to 30 milligrams of THC total in a day for any condition, with the possible exception of attempts to primarily treat cancer. Uh, those seem to require high doses of cannabinoids. For cannabidiol, which is a very versatile substance, um, it's much less potent, and so the numbers need to be higher. And it is true to say that low doses of CBD in pure form um, may not be too active. I like to say that there's almost nothing that CBD does that wouldn't be enhanced by having at least a trace amount of THC aboard. Uh, and that's the experience of most clinicians uh, who do a lot of this work. In pure form, we're finding that very high doses might be necessary. So a few hundred milligrams to treat anxiety 
and uh, uh, in the range of 1,500 milligrams or more of CBD in pure form to treat uh, serious conditions such as intractable epilepsy. Uh, and for schizophrenia, it's in the range of 800 to 1,000 milligrams a day. Obviously, that uh, is accompanied by uh, great expense and burden for patients. Um, I think that uh, the more whole extracts of the plant have a great deal more to offer in terms of economy, uh, as well as a, a improved therapeutic index, meaning that um, more bang for the buck, lower milligrams, uh, and fewer side effects. Can you explain the two types of uh, cannabinoid receptors and uh, their different functions in the body? Sure. Yeah, great. Uh, an important question. So CP1 is the more familiar. It is the psychoactive receptor and has a major role in the brain in modulating uh, neurotransmitter function. So what it does is actually reduce the release of uh, certain neurotransmitters, which sounds ominous, but uh, from a therapeutic standpoint, if there's an excess of glutamate, a stimulatory neurotransmitter, this will be a driver to neuropathic pain. Additionally, it is so stimulatory that after head injury, it can actually kill the cells through what's called excitotoxicity, uh, where the cells are just burned out and then succumb. Isn't there a possibility also that that may be a long-term a pathway to degenerative conditions like ALS? Absolutely. It is a factor there. So when we have uh, medicines like THC that are going to reduce the release or CBD, which does so indirectly, uh, this can be very therapeutic in a wide variety of central nervous system disorders. So uh, the endocannabinoid system and CB1 in particular is uh, really at the root of pain in the brain, uh, whether you're going to vomit or not, seizure thresholds, regulation of emotion, uh, addiction potential, uh, really is at the root of everything because it is the most common G-protein couple receptor in the brain, exceeding those the receptor density for all of the neurotransmitters combined. And it's also out in the body, in the spinal cord, uh, in the gut, uh, where it regulates propulsion uh, through the gut, also secretion of fluids. CB2, in contrast, is mainly out in the body, but can be in the brain under conditions of inflammation. And it is mainly immunomodulatory, so it's going to work on immune function and, again, uh, as an anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. So... Most people are not using pure THC or pure CBD. They're using whole plant products and extracts. What kind of advice do you give those people? How do they select strains? What route of administration do you recommend? Well, it is a morass out there, and it's very dependent on geography. If someone lives on the West Coast, um, they may have a lot of choices. Other places, that's much less the case. Uh, one of the major problems is a lack of regulation in the industry. I tell patients and physicians that every preparation of whatever source should be accompanied by a recent certificate of analysis, uh, because we're interested not just in how much THC and CBD 
is in the material, but also the terpenoid content, which is going to have a major modulatory influence on the effects of the preparation. So I shared your difficulty in trying to make recommendations to people. It's very dependent on where they live and what's available, you know, but with a certificate of analysis and knowing what the patient might be trying to treat, I feel like we can give more specific advice. But uh, the industry has been very poorly regulated in that respect. And so it is uh, extremely burdensome for a patient to try and figure this out on their own. Cannabis has many different chemical compounds. You've spoken to CBD and THC and now just a little bit to the terpenoids. What's the role of the other 300 plus uh, chemical constituents? Uh, well, each one is... Uh, has its own particular pharmacology. We know a good bit about the pharmacology of perhaps 12 of the cannabinoids that the plant makes, but there are at least 150 closely related molecules that come out of the plant. It's really incredible. I could give a few examples of the minor cannabinoids, so-called. Um, I think the next big thing is cannabigerol. So this is sort of the parent compound. Uh, normally in the plant, it doesn't stop there. It goes on to these other substances, but particularly in Oregon and other parts of the West Coast, we're now seeing the advent of more cannabigerol products. Um, I think it's extremely promising. It is psychoactive, but without being intoxicating. And I'll make that same distinction in relation to CBD. So what CBG does is have a really strong anti-anxiety effect without being sedating or addictive. So this is quite distinct from your benzodiazepines or the drugs normally used to treat anxiety. Uh, beyond that, uh, it's a strong antibiotic. It works on methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA. Uh, and beyond that, uh, it works on something called the TRIP-M8 receptor, um, and uh, should have application to treatment of prostate cancer, which is extremely common in our society. So this is just a few examples there. There also is renewed interest in the uh, so-called acid cannabinoids. These are the forms of the cannabinoids in the fresh plant uh, before they're heated. So tetrahydrocannabinolic acid uh, has a couple of very interesting mechanisms of action. Uh, it works on tumor necrosis factor alpha, which should make it applicable to treatment of a variety of autoimmune conditions, uh, particularly inflammatory bowel diseases, but also MS, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. On another activity is on the PPAR gamma receptor, a nuclear receptor uh, that affects gene transcription. And this should make it applicable in weight loss, diabetes type 2, and treatment of cancer, among others. Uh, and I could go on and on. As for the terpenoids, there's some 200 uh, that have been described in cannabis. So far, none unique to cannabis. But these, again, have a major modulatory effect on THC in particular. So uh, just look at the most common ones. Um, myrcene is the predominant terpene in, in cannabis. And in combination with THC, it's responsible for that narcotic couch lock effect. There's sort of a synergy in the sedation aspect, which is not what people commonly need unless they're trying to get to sleep. Better would to be 
would be to have alpha pinene, uh, which counteracts the short-term memory impairment engendered by THC, and or a limonene, which is a very pronounced mood elevator, antidepressant, uh, and then caryophylline, which is fascinating because it's both a, a terpenoid and a cannabinoid. It works on the CB2 receptor, the non-psychoactive receptor, where THC also works. So it can produce anti-inflammatory and analgesic pain-relieving effects uh, without intoxication. So those are a few examples. Andy, as a botanist, is this spectacular range of effects that cannabis has typical of most plants, or would you say that this really stands alone? I think it's it's exceptional. We see, I think, with all plants that have physiological activity, that there is a complex of compounds responsible for the effects. It's not just, they're not just due to a single active principle, but uh, with cannabis, this is really an exceptional array of, uh, of molecule families of molecules. I, th- I think it is unique in that regard. And so many of the conditions that we really struggle to take good care of patients with, it seems like there's this potential. I, I want to point to one in particular. Uh, you were a guest at our mental health conference a year ago, and you brought to my attention a study that had been done in Canada. Uh, this is a really interesting study where they looked at a registry of people who had licensure to use medical marijuana and asked them about their use. And it it turned out that people were able to use um, the products to help manage their anxiety, and they actually were able to go off of some of their benzodiazepine or antidepressant. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that study. Sure. Again, because of its versatility, we find a situation that when people begin to use cannabis uh, medicinally, they're often able to reduce dosage or taper off of a variety of medicines. Most notable uh, would be the opioids. Uh, so it has a strong opioid sparing effect, but uh, an analogous benefit has been seen on benzodiazepines, uh, some of the antidepressants. Uh, and these are mainly from observational studies. Most of the randomized control trials uh, have had a requirement that people keep stable on their existing regimen. So this is not an effect that uh, has necessarily been confirmed in most of the randomized control trials. But I certainly believe it has that potential uh, because in real life experience, uh, we've seen the same thing, uh, especially with prescription uh, products such as uh, nabiximols and epidiolex. Ethan, uh, in addition to all of these natural constituents of cannabis, uh, I'm sure there are now people working in various labs and pharmaceutical companies to develop analogs of the cannabinoids and other constituents. So what, what do you see as the potential there for developing new medications? Oh, I think that uh, some will get to market. Uh, you know, there have been a couple of, of examples. Marinol is a synthetic THC. It's had very little market influence. We also have Nabilone, which is a semi-synthetic analog of THC. Again, not with uh, a lot of traction. Uh, my strong bias that I think you'll share is that nature does it better that we need the full panoply of uh, what the the plant offers as opposed to isolated uh, single agents. Now, the model of uh, pharmaceutical development in this country 
uh, has been to, uh, for some three generations, uh, having a target in mind, usually receptor, computer designing a molecule that's going to fit there with the highest affinity uh, and specificity. And then down the road, maybe they discover it's toxic, but oh well. You know, in this instance, we have co-evolved with cannabis for thousands of years. And uh, although there can be pitfalls and side effects, we're well acquainted uh, with all of the adverse event profile associated with cannabis, and none of it is fatal. Uh, I should point out what a lot of people know already, that uh, it's not possible to fatally overdose uh, on cannabis, as opposed to the opioids. There are very few CB1 receptors in the uh, respiratory centers in the medulla, and although other things can happen, no one can kill themselves with this drug, fortunately. Even even the strongest advocates for uh, cannabis may worry about heavy use in uh, teenagers, uh, young adults whose brains are still developing. Can, can you share what the concern is and, and if you agree with it? Well, I think I said this at the conference last year. Uh, nobody thinks that it's a good thing for kids to come home from school when they're able to. Um, do bong hits all afternoon instead of uh, studying or doing sports. However, the best studies currently show that even in teenagers, heavy use is not associated with permanent damage. I think something that's often lost in this situation is asking why. Why has this behavior developed? What might this young person be trying to treat that hasn't been addressed, whether it be social anxiety, ADHD, or anything else? And I I really would be highly critical of studies that fail to address the why. So I, I think that due caution is required. However, we shouldn't be unduly worried about permanent sequelae from this um, because uh, various studies have shown that almost any cognitive effects of even the heaviest cannabis use will dissipate within 30 days. Given the tremendous potential for therapeutic use, what do you think it will take to get it out of Schedule 1? How do you see that unfolding? We need more enlightened politicians There's uh, the umpteenth uh, legal case is going before the Supreme Court. And if they, uh, I just filed an amicus curiae brief with colleagues uh, on that. And uh, it's possible something could happen there. But I think we need a political solution. Unfortunately, this is one of those situations where the public gets it. Uh, recognition of the medicinal benefits of cannabis is about a 90% proposition uh, almost anywhere you go in the U.S., but uh, the politicians are not similarly on board with it, uh, so that needs to change. And I want you to reflect on what uh, Ethan just shared, because you wrote a book called, long time ago, uh, From Chocolate to Morphine, about why people might be attracted to mind-altering substances. So uh, do you think it's always a sign of um, a, a problem in the young person's life, or do you think this is just part of what we do as developing humans? Well, in my first book, The Natural Mind, the thesis was that human beings have an innate drive to alter consciousness. And I think that makes evolutionary sense because I think these 
uh, altered states potentially are doorways into fuller use of the nervous system and experiences that may be very positive. Substances are one way of satisfying that drive. There are many others, uh, and I've written about those, everything from you know, meditation, whirling, I mean, it goes an infinite list. And the basic point is that the experiences people seek are latent within the nervous system. And when drugs are used to, to get to them, they act as triggers or releases. And people, and cannabis is one of the best examples of this, that people have to learn to get high on cannabis. They have to learn to associate the relatively subtle effects of the drug with the state of consciousness that they're looking for. Um, so I think that's my basic answer. There are lots of other reasons why people get attracted to the use of substances. A major one is is that is their illegal illegality, and that especially for young people, I think, is a strong attraction. And in countries, you know, probably the Netherlands was the first country to do this when they decriminalized uh, cannabis. They said their intention was to make it boring. Uh, and it seems to have worked that use went down in the Dutch population. They had a lot of people coming in from other countries, Germany especially, to use. But, you know, I think that we often fail to recognize how making things prohibited and illegal makes them so much more attractive to certain segments of the population, especially young people. Yeah, here, here. It's that old adolescent rebellion. I, I would just uh, go on from that to say that uh, use rates in states that have decriminalized or made it medically available have actually gone down. Uh, so there's a lesson. You have to remove the cachet and uh, it will have less appeal. You know, if, if dad needs it uh, to treat his arthritis, it isn't so cool. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast. Neither of you advocate smoking cannabis. What, how would you recommend uh, it be taken? You know, if, if someone really has an acute need, let's say that someone's having an aura of a migraine and they've got to get it on board fast, they're not going to be able to um, take anything orally because of the nausea and vomiting, then vaporization uh, is a great alternative. However, for the vast majority of people using cannabis medicinally, they have chronic conditions with a need for ongoing dosing. Under those uh, conditions, I really favor uh, tinctures, uh, oral mucosal, or oral preparations uh, that are going to uh, people get by with two or three doses a day. Uh, there'll be fewer peaks and valleys of activity, um, so less chance of intoxication with an appropriate dose. And yeah, that, that would be my, my response. You know, I was very excited when I saw uh, the appearance of uh, Sativex, which was one of the products that Ethan, uh, you know, this advised the company in the UK on. Uh, that was a metered dose oral spray, and it looks like a medical preparation. And I think for physicians in this country to embrace cannabis, they need to have products that look like 
medical drugs they're familiar with, not like recreational drugs. Uh, so that's, I think, a stumbling block at the moment that to, to find good uh, medical preparations that could be administered, say, orally or uh, by oral mucosa. And what about topical? Well, that's a complicated one. Cannabis is great for the skin. Uh, so in treating inflammation, itch, any disorder of that type, the real controversy comes in about uh, absorption and what else you can treat. So the terpenoids, if they're in the preparation, get through the skin great, but the cannabinoids hardly do at all. So I know innumerable people that swear by certain preparations to rub on their joints, but they say something funny, and that is that they get instant relief or within minutes. And there's no way that a sufficient amount is getting in or into the joint to do that. So you really have to look at the preparation. Maybe it's got menthol or other uh, agents in them that are affecting the C pain fibers in the skin. There was a recent trial of uh, topical preparation to treat epilepsy, which to me was a total laugher because there was no way that it could work. You cannot treat a systemic illness uh, by applying any amount of cannabis on the skin. Again, great for the skin, not good for internal conditions. Um, and I would just add, uh, for the people using it on their joints, uh, if they get relief and like it, hey, I think that's fine, but they shouldn't fool themselves about what's actually going on. Andy, have you seen people who are addicted to cannabis and what do you advise I've seen people who are dependent on cannabis, but I think there are complex reasons for that. And if they're separated from the drug, they don't have anything that, of the classical signs or symptoms that we associate with addiction. So I think people can become dependent on it, but it, it is not a difficult one to break. Ethan, you are one of the leading cannabis researchers, and I'm wondering if you can share with our audience uh, what you're excited about. What's coming next? Well, uh, as touched on earlier, I really think there's going to be a tremendous role uh, for cannabis-based preparations in treating neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, I think this must happen. We have an aging population. Um, we're going to have a huge public health burden of people with Alzheimer's, as well as other degenerative diseases such as Parkinson's. That one's going to be a tough nut to crack, but I think that the promise, uh, particularly in Alzheimer's disease, is uh, very real, just in management alone. And again, if we could hit the holy grail of slowing down uh, the progression of the disease or starting people early who are at risk genetically, uh, I think it would be a major advance. Well, as I said earlier, um, not what one might have expected 20, 25 years ago that we would be um, pointing people towards cannabis as a way of preventing dementia. Thank you so very much for being our guest on this podcast and for your work. It was an honor. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, 
azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.